Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, January 20th, 2021, Inauguration Day here in the United States, as well as National Cheese Lovers Day. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am your Gouda host for this episode, and joining me, as always, is the real talent around here, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, and I'd just like to remind everyone listening that cheese, it's what for dinner. Well, it might be what's for dinner later on today, but right now for lunch, we've got some of the greatest news stories that we were able to assemble over the last week. Um, we're going to jump in with some of the lighter touch news stories. You know, this is maybe something that popped up on our radar, but eh, we're trying to figure out how much discussion we need to go into with it. Um, starting off with uh, some news from Hitachi Vantara. They look like they're going to be jumping into the deep end of the Kubernetes pool with a new offering. Um, they're going to call it HKS, Hitachi Kubernetes Service. Um, it's built to help simplify multi-cloud Kubernetes and provide extra functionalities because one of the things that Hitachi Vantara is really good at is storage. Uh, HKS is going to offer a container storage interface to help provide persistent storage for Kubernetes, which is kind of a little bit of a misnomer when you think about it, because why are you providing persistent storage to a container? But I think Stephen has some thoughts and suggestions on that. Stephen, is this a big move for Hitachi Vantara jumping into the container market? Or is this more kind of a tag along offering hoping to keep uh, some of their their customers from running away to things like uh, AWS or Google? I think it's a sign of what's going on in the industry right now, Tom. Um, you know, frankly, I uh, saw this uh, coverage and just, you know, just scrolled right on by because I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. But, you know, thinking about it, um, you know, to their credit, you know, Hitachi Ventara is a company that does uh, a lot of business with a lot of big companies. And frankly, uh, a lot of those big companies are starting to look at Kubernetes. Um, a lot of those companies would benefit from having a uh, integrated Kubernetes service from a trusted partner like Hitachi Ventara. Um, I don't think there's really a lot technically uh, to talk about here. Um, this is basically what you know, you've got from Dell or HPE or Pure Storage or NetApp. But, um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, another company is here with this product, um, sure. Uh, it reminds me of the early 90s. Remember when every company came out with an SUV and then everybody had an SUV and it's like, oh, okay, well, that's great. Now everybody's got an SUV. Um, you know, if you need an SUV, uh, Hitachi's got you covered now. Exactly. So, uh, Tom, uh, turning the page uh, from that story, let's turn the page on Flash, too. Um, uh, January 12th, Flash is dead. Uh, the much maligned plugin is gone, disabled, deactivated, but it seems that one company didn't get the memo. Extreme Networks was forced to inform their users that their uh, wing manager platform wasn't ready to run without Flash just yet, and that they would need to change the date on their computers in order to manage their networks. Uh, that's because 1-12-2021 was the date that triggered an automatic death notice to pop up from Adobe. Uh, Extreme is rushing to get out a patch uh, to clients to enable Wing Manager to run uh, without Flash. Um, Tom, what's the deal? What's going on here? How can somebody have not gotten the memo that Flash is gone? Well, I don't know because this feels like a Monty Python sketch because Flash has been mostly dead for the last several years. Remember, we got the big warning that we're not going to use it anymore. Then none of the browsers supported it anymore. Then we got the notification late last year that, hey, we're really going to kill it off. 
and I'll say this props to Adobe for not just killing it, but burying it with garlic and a stake through its heart and salting the earth so that it could never rise again with this very clever death notice. Basically, if you try to launch anything that requires flash today, anytime after 1-12-2021, you get a pop-up in the client that basically says, I'm sorry, Flash is dead, do something else. I do, however, question the fact that essentially the notification just checks the current date on your system and pulls the pop-up. So if you set your date to 1-11-2021, you don't see it anymore. So, okay, creativity, yes. But I think it's funny that we've been asking about the use of Flash and other types of plugins in UIs and, and especially in these browser-based GUIs for a while. And the answer is always like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got plans to get off of that. And yet somebody got caught. And to me, the somebody that got caught was Extreme Networks this time. And granted, the Wing Manager is kind of a, it's carryover from the days of the Motorola stuff and things like that. So there's no telling if their current solutions don't use Flash. I know that the stuff that they acquired from Arrowhive, which I believe is their Network IQ Manager, it has no native Flash capabilities. The problem is, is right now they're in the middle of that integration. So none of these systems can talk to each other. Uh, you would hope that you can fix that. However, near and dear to a networking person like mine's heart, uh, the CLI still works beautifully. So if you need to manage your system and you don't want to change the data on your laptop, fire up your terminal window and let's get typing. Uh, Tom, please, please tell me that that CLI is called Wing Commander. It's not, right? I'm going to make a move to have it officially called Wing Commander. So uh, yeah, let's let's make that happen. I really appreciate that. I, I will say though, to their credit, um, the, the ability to actually make Flash work, even if it is like a totally hacky thing to do is oh, godsend because I'm sure there's still Flash out there. And I'm sure that people are gonna need to figure out how to make it work. And the fact that the workaround is um, something that anyone can do, but not just click this button to make it still work is a really good move. Uh, that's my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Steven, um, I know that if you're a user of the WhatsApp messaging system, you've probably had a really busy last couple of weeks. Uh, that's because that very popular message app used by people the world over, which just so happens to be owned by Mark Zuckerberg and his friends over at Facebook, announced last month that they were going to be making a couple of little changes to their privacy policy, something, something, sharing a whole bunch of extra data with Facebook. I, I don't I don't get what the kerfuffle is, but a lot of people did, in fact, feel very fuffled because um, they realized that if you did not accept the terms of the app, it just wouldn't launch anymore. So you basically were being railroaded into sharing all kinds of things with Facebook that you really didn't want to share, including like your phone number. That was supposed to take place on February the 8th. However, this week, Facebook went, um, why is everybody leaving our platform and running away to popular messaging apps like Signal? Maybe we have a problem. So they released a notice in a blog post saying, all right, guys, we didn't mean it. We're going to go ahead and we're actually going to delay the implementation of these changes until May of this year. Um, that's made some users feel a little bit happier because basically it's a stay of execution of them staying on the platform. However, knowing Facebook, that just means they're likely to do the same thing in May without even bothering to do any kind of impact analysis or figure out if these really are good solid privacy changes. But Stephen, my question for you is, have we finally reached the point where it comes to people's personal privacy that changing these kinds of things in WhatsApp is a bridge too far and people aren't willing to give up every facet of their um, private life and all their personal identifiable information just for a simple emoji update? 
Man, I think that this the real lesson of this story is um, just how gullible people are in that they will literally switch to a different app just because Elon Musk told them to. Uh, he, he tweeted, use Signal, and WhatsApp's installs went up like 600% or something. Now, honestly, I don't think people uh, understand or care about privacy, uh, certainly not as much as they ought to. And I think that this is another case of sort of, uh, oh, where's the herd? Oh, the herd is going over there. Let me go over there too. Um, you know, I mean, the thing is, the, the, the telling thing is uh, people still use Facebook Messenger. In fact, a lot of people use Facebook Messenger. Note, I don't use Facebook Messenger. So if you send me a message on Facebook Messenger, I won't see it. But that doesn't stop my dad or my sisters or the rest of my family who constantly send me messages on Facebook Messenger. I actually had a neighbor yell at me uh, because she sent me a message on Facebook Messenger. I'm like, what? But I mean, the point is, um, people use these things. They use the worst possible systems all the time. I don't think we can read anything into this except that this time uh, people got all up in arms about it. And the fact that they've just delayed it, I think really uh, seals that deal. Basically, Facebook's hoping you'll forget. Maybe they're hoping that something horrible will happen in the world because everything's been going so fine right now that I think everybody you know, uh, just jumped on this because it was a news story and it was just a slow news day. I mean, honestly, what's going on in the world? Anyway, so um, I really think that, uh, that this, there's just there's no story here at all. Um, they're still going to get their way. They're still going to share their data. And if you want to laugh, look at the kind of data that Facebook Messenger shares compared to the kind of data that WhatsApp, even under uh, Facebook, shares. Also, uh, as a wise man said, um, use Signal. Yes, as a Signal user, I would uh, I would highly encourage you to investigate the platform that you want to be on to make sure that it's free of the kinds of people you don't want to be talking with. But also, um, I'm probably going to get a pop up that you've joined Signal like I have over the last week. But you know, don't don't listen to the uh, the tech giants. Listen to your friends and neighbors who yell at you over Facebook Messenger. So, uh, Tom, uh, last week we had some fun on the run, uh, rundown uh, talking about the proposed merger between Acacia and Cisco and that it was in danger of a uh, massive legal battle. Um, as we suggested, the real culprit here is spelled M-O-N-E-Y. Cisco agreed to sweeten the offer to Acacia by an extra $1.9 billion to bring the total to $4.5 billion. And the deal still needs to be approved uh, by the Acacia shareholders, but an extra $2 billion goes a long way. Tom, is this going to be a, a problem uh, moving forward, or has money once again greased the wheels? I don't think it's going to be a problem for this merger. I think it's going to be a problem for everybody else that Cisco tries to buy down the line. I mean, you know, just to recap quickly for the people who might have watched last week's rundown, um, Cisco wanted to buy Acacia. Acacia said yes. Cisco then um, had some issues getting the regulatory approvals from the myriad of people who now have to approve these things. And in the meantime, Acacia stock value went up. So Acacia said, wait a minute, we can get more money. So then Cisco sued them. They sued Cisco back. And within like two days, suddenly a small dump truck full of cash appeared on the Acacia parking lot and unloaded $1.9 billion. And now suddenly we're best friends again and we're back on. So here's my biggest problem with this. One, you're holding them up for more money. That doesn't sit well with me, but I'm not the one who has to answer to the stockholders. Two, Cisco really wanted this technology. Four and a half billion dollars is in the neighborhood of what they paid for Scientific Atlanta for those set-top boxes that you probably are still using, right? No, no. This, this was big because, like I said last week, this is something that Cisco really is kind of pinning their hopes on for the future. But more importantly, 
this sets a precedent. If Cisco wants you bad enough, you can renegotiate the terms of your deal. All you have to do is wait for some regulatory body, whether they be the US, the Chinese, the EU, or I don't know, Zimbabwe, to decide that maybe they don't like this. So what's gonna happen the next time one of these things comes up? Is there gonna be some kind of a bit of a renegotiation behind the scenes? I, I don't want to imply that there could be some dealing on the backside, depending on who you talk to. But um, yeah, $1.9 billion is nothing to sneeze at. So congrats to the people at Acacia who will soon become part of the Cisco Optical Services Unit. Um, yeah, I hope your desks don't have any tinfoil on them or anything whenever you show up. Yeah, I gotta say, man, um, money does uh, tend to make these uh, these deals work. And yeah, I mean, frankly, um, this seems to me to be the sort of thing that happens, right? You know, um, the the you know you you announce an acquisition, the price goes up, the price goes down, you sue somebody, and the price gets renegotiated. Um, I. I guess that's how it's going to be. Um, one thing I'll say is that uh, you know the best thing that can happen is if the regulators start uh, you know having you know sort of fair and transparent ways of assessing these deals, and uh, hopefully then it won't be as much of a um, I don't know kind of a wait and see game to see if you know is China going to approve it, is the EU going to approve it, is DC going to approve it? Uh, you know maybe people will just know um, that things are going to be approved. Um, so Tom, let's turn our story or our attention to some of these longer stories now. Um, you know, the first thing up here is, uh, well, it's kind of an interesting story, but uh, I think that, that you're gonna need to provide some context. So uh, hackers are ste stepping up their game to steal other people's data. Uh, and the latest target is a company called Mimecast. Uh, the company reported last week that one of the certificates they used to authenticate to exchange uh, 365 had been compromised. Uh, Microsoft informed the company of this issue and they've been mum ever since. Uh, the report on the incident says that the certificate enables customers to connect specific Mimecast applications to exchange 365 tenants. Uh, Microsoft, at the behest of Mimecast, started blocking this certificate on Monday. Um, Tom, is this a case of bad luck on the part of Mimecast, or are there bigger issues at play here? Well, I think as we're starting to unpack all of the stuff that's been happening in the last couple of months, this was not bad luck on the part of Mimecast. This was good fortune on the behalf of Microsoft. So. Microsoft told Mimecast what had happened. Remember that because we'll come back to that in just a minute. Microsoft told Mimecast that one of your certificates had been compromised. And this is important because, I mean, when you think about it, whenever we try to stand up any kind of computer to computer communications, there's really two things we can do. We can use some kind of mutually authenticated key, which is great if you want it to be quick and dirty and unscalable at all, because you can't scale a pre-shared key to cloud scale 100,000 nodes. So we use a certificate, right? Now I can verify that this is Mimecast on one end and this is Azure Exchange 365 on the other. And as long as you two trust each other, it's real easy to make that connection, right? Eh, provided you write the right check. If I can compromise one of those certificates and I can pretend to be a Mimecast service connecting to somebody's Office 365 Exchange inbox, could you imagine the havoc that I could wreak? All I have to do is break into your system, attach my Mimecast to your Office 365 email client and suddenly, I have all of the function and feature that I want to be able to pull mail out of your system, to be able to, to persist in there. And when you pull up the dashboard, you're like, oh, hey, Mimecast is working. Maybe somebody smart's gonna be like, wait a minute, we don't use Mimecast, what's going on? So Microsoft did the right thing here. They immediately notified Mimecast what they had seen 
and they asked them for the solution. And Mindcast solution was right. Block the certificate, make it uncomfortable for a few users. Um, most reports that I've said said that the number of people that use this particular ser service for Mindcast, you could probably count them on your fingers and toes. There's not a lot of companies. The problem is, is they're enormous. So this could have been a massive egg in the face moment for them. This means that Microsoft and Mimecast are gonna have to do a really thorough audit of some of the stuff that they've got going on, especially at cloud scale, because based on the number of reports that I'm starting to see that are referencing things like Azure in the uh, attack vectors, and we'll have something on this coming up soon, this is becoming a very big barn door and the horses are running for it. If Microsoft doesn't get it closed fast enough, we're going to have a stampede on our hands and it's not going to look pretty. Yeah, this seems to be uh, the sort of thing that that's happening right now, Tom. I mean, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're, you get certificates being stolen, you got, uh, you know, code being signed with official certificates. I mean, uh, there was a time when I think a lot of people in the industry thought that uh, basically, uh, you know, certificates and certificate authorities and everything would be able to stop this stuff permanently without, um, you know, without proper signed code. Uh, you know, you, it, the system wouldn't run it and the system wouldn't integrate it. And uh, that would be that. But uh, certainly that doesn't seem to be the case because essentially the, the hackers are just uh, going after the, the key generator now instead of going after the, uh, you know, going after the lock. Um, and, it, you know, it's funny, this is a real world uh, situation as well. You know, I mean, if you, uh, if you look at some of the, you know, some of the most secure uh, systems, you know, physical uh, devices in the world, um, you know, the, the, the hacks tend to be inside jobs or somebody copying a key or something like that. Um, you know, I mean, it kind of goes back to you're in my favorite movie of all time, Tom, uh, uh, the Christmas movie known as Die Hard, where, uh, you know, they have to shut down the power in order to open the vault. Um, you know, I mean, you're, they're, they're going to go after the keys one way or another. Yeah. And that's that's the biggest problem, though, is that we've we've spent so much time focused on the other problems that we've let these things kind of. I don't know, bubble under the surface until they're a big enough target that they're worth hacking. Um, when two-factor authentication first came out, you know, why would it be a big deal for me to steal somebody's user token to be able to get in? Well, then somebody stole the seed value for all RSA tokens, and now we've got a huge problem. That's the kind of state that we're dealing with. And I say state on, on, on purpose because the people who are going after these things are sponsored by the kinds of states that would really like to get in and persist in places for a while. All right, um, Stephen, uh, chips are a huge uh, thing that we like to talk about here. And I'm not just talking about tortilla or ruffles. I'm talking about computer chips. And we've got some chip news, but surprise, it's not about Intel for once. Um, the subject is Qualcomm. Now, they're a fan of ours on the show. Uh, we've talked about them quite a bit in the past. Um, they are picking up Nuvia. It's a $1.4 billion acquisition that's going to augment their mobile, laptop, and automotive chip manufacturing. And if you didn't know that automotive chips were a big deal, um, now you do. The move is seen as a way for Qualcomm to kind of jump back into the game. I don't know if you know this or not, Stephen, but Qualcomm's been kind of mired in some patent litigation for the last couple of years with this um, fruit company out in Cupertino, California. They've, they've been arguing about some patent royalties. Um, 
The problem, though, is that the company that they're picking up, Nuvia, is no stranger to the same sad patent litigation problems because it turns out that the founders of Nuvia came from Apple and there's been a little back and forth about what they knew and what they didn't. And sometimes these things take a while to get settled out in the courts. Now, the other thing that I've heard, and this is where we kind of tie in with some of your expertise, Stephen, is that this is a way for Qualcomm to kind of start moving away from the ARM architecture that they've really heavily been leveraging. Why would that be? Well, it turns out that the company that is potentially going to acquire ARM, NVIDIA, is a huge Qualcomm competitor. So now you're putting all of your eggs into the basket of a person who is going to take them from you as soon as possible. Um, Steven, is Qualcomm ready to make these big moves because they really need to stay on top of the mobile market with Apple doing a lot more development and NVIDIA looking to snap up ARM? Or is this kind of Qualcomm saying, we've got to get out from underneath ARM and start developing our own types of solutions because if we don't, we're going to get beaten really badly? Yeah, I think it's the former, honestly. Um, I think that Qualcomm looked around for a chip design group that could help them to kind of strike back against Apple. Um, you know, this I think this is all about the fact that Apple has been just eating everyone else's lunch in terms of uh, chip design. Uh, many of these companies uh, are basically just using ARM uh, designs and uh, manufacturing them, integrating and manufacturing them. Um, Nubia not, is not like that, neither was Apple. Um, essentially, Apple uh, licensed the underlying instruction set and is building their own, um, entirely their own CPU designs. Uh, because of that, Apple was not only able to produce chips that are literally two or three generations ahead of every other company, literally twice as fast as competing mobile processors, uh, they were able to shake off Intel and, uh, you know, build, you know, potentially high value competitor to x86. Um, I, if I'm Qualcomm, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, you know, we got to do something about this. I mean, the latest, uh, you know, Qualcomm CPUs are, um, you know, they're, they're good, they're, you know, advances, but they're really, really, really not keeping up with Apple. And so this is Qualcomm trying to figure out how to keep up with Apple. Um, I think they looked at it and said, here's a company that's got a lot of chip design technology, you know, chip design expertise, a bunch of people from Apple and from Google, I, I should point out, are, uh, are over there. And uh, this is a way that we can kind of beef up our chip uh, design cred. Uh, the challenge, though, is that Nuvia was not really designing mobile chips. Um, by all accounts, now this is not a company that, uh, you know, we know a ton about, but by all accounts, they were developing server chips and AI processors and uh, things like that. Um, they were also developing their own uh, CPU microarchitecture. This is awesome, um, but how does that, I don't know if that's gonna translate instantly into Qualcomm. I think that this is a big, big question mark. Uh, at the very least, it's a you know yellow flag of, of warning saying, you know, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Um, this is not a situation where Qualcomm's going to get this magical team in there and then suddenly they're going to catch up with Apple. On the contrary, this is a case where they're going to end up, you know, bringing in a team that is probably very, very good, but that needs a lot of, you know, kind of work to get back up and running uh, in the mobile space. Uh, I haven't heard anybody suggest that Qualcomm is interested in the markets that Nuvia was interested in, which would be the data center market and so on. Um, you know, I think that 
this really is kind of a puzzling acquisition. Um, it's it's good money. It's not massive money. Uh, Qualcomm has the cash. They need the skills. They got the skills. But is one point whatever billion a good aqua hire if they don't come in with a chip that you can start producing next year or even two years from now? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think so. And um, you know, frankly, I don't like this deal. So um, anyway, I, I'm not super excited about the results of this. I have a feeling that this is going to go down as one. You know, end of the year, end of next year, we're going to be like, hey, remember that Nuvia company that Qualcomm bought? Yeah, that didn't help them, did they? So that's my feeling. Yeah, I would I would tend to concur with you, Stephen. And the, the one thing I don't think you touched on that would worry me is that Qualcomm, one of Qualcomm's largest customers right now is still Apple. And we know that Apple bought the Intel mobile modem business from Intel. I'm sorry, yes, they bought the mobile modem business from Intel and they're working on developing their own chips, mostly because of Qualcomm's patent litigation thing, but they're still not ready to come out from underneath that just yet. Do you think Apple, who's already had their tussles with Qualcomm and with Nuvia, is going to sit idly by while Nuvia develops chipsets based on things they might have taken from Apple and then tries to sell it back to Apple at a premium? That doesn't sound like something that the people at Apple are going to put up with. No, and, and on that point, let me just say too, um, I'll just go, you know, I'll, I'll bet you, uh, I'll bet you beer that uh, Apple switches to homegrown LTE and, and 5G chips before Qualcomm sees any fruit from the Nuvia acquisition. Well, that's a bet. <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh, let's turn back to security once again, Tom. We get another brewing story here. Um, so y'all remember something about solar winds and a Russian incursion and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, cybersecurity company Malwarebytes just announced on Tuesday that they found traces of this same hacking group in their systems as well. Uh, the group is uh, called Dark Halo instead of the more catchy name UN2452, which sounds like an alien critter from Star Trek. Um, they used Azure AD and Office 365 applications as a vector to jump into their systems. Um, they're quick to point out that this uh, involves the same group, but it was not SolarWinds Orion. This is a different hack from the same group that uses some of the same vectors potentially. Uh, the breach was uncovered when Microsoft noticed, notified Malwarebytes on December 15th, uh, just like uh, the SolarWinds breach was uh, uncovered. Um, what does this mean, Tom, going forward uh, for companies trying to figure out uh, how vulnerable they might be <laughs> And uh, maybe Microsoft's got a new product here where they uh, let people know when they've been hacked. Yeah, so remember that pin I told you to stick up there with uh, cloud hacking and Microsoft and all that? Let's go back to that pin and pull it back down. So look at the number of things that have happened, even in just the last couple of weeks. We have this Malwarebytes hack. We have the, the Mimecast certificate. There was another story that we didn't get to the run, into in the rundown where a company was, attempt, they someone attempted to hack them through the Azure reseller service account that the reseller used to keep an eye on the company's licenses. This has shifted. So let's go back to your favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard where the terrorists take over the lobby and control access to the building and then take a whole bunch of hostages on the 30th floor. They want the hostages, right? No, they want the vault that's down in the basement. Well, then why all the big dog and pony show? Misdirection. They want the FBI to show up and cut the power. 
This, I think, is ultimately what we're leading to. As much as we've been putting the SolarWinds Orion hack in the press, and let's be fair, they've taken their shots. That was not the ultimate goal. Was it a nice to have? Yeah, if 85% of your targets use Orion for their monitoring system, you have an easy in. But that's not what they wanted. They wanted to get into Microsoft Azure. They wanted an entry point into everybody's service. Because you think 85% of these people are using Azure? I guarantee you just as many, if not more of them, or even richer targets are using the cloud. Now, here's what we're not talking about. Microsoft has notified several companies that they have been breached by this group and they know what to look for now. That's how they were able to footprint Dark Halo as the people behind it because they were able to see, use the same tools and the same methodology that they were using that were used to hack it. I mean, as a matter of fact, Azure Active Directory now appears to be the new entry point into networks. Again, not SolarWinds specific, but fruit of the poison tree from the SolarWinds hack that we saw. Have you heard the name Amazon being mentioned yet? Because I haven't. Do you honestly believe that Dark Halo went after all of these companies that are using Azure and decided to leave the largest cloud provider in the world alone for no reason whatsoever? I don't. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, bravo to Satya Nadella's Microsoft, who cleaned house and in two weeks has figured out how to footprint the people that are being compromised through Azure's systems management, whatever is going on. If you work for AWS, you need to get into your systems right now and make sure the same stuff isn't happening. Because I promise you, you are a much richer target than they are. And if this comes out in the wash three or four months from now that you have been actively being leveraged as a platform, you think the SolarWinds stuff was bad? Bezos is going to be spending billions on good PR to make this, to shine up this, well, thing, because it's going to be ugly. So, you know, Malwarebytes getting hacked, I don't think is the bigger part of the story. The bigger story is Microsoft is actively seeing their platforms being leveraged as a vector for attacking. And it's only going to get worse from here. I do wonder if um, there might honestly be some technical differences, though, between the AWS and Azure approaches to these things. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of conflicted personally here because on the one hand, I'm thinking the same thing as you, which is, oh boy, we just haven't, we haven't even heard of that this yet. Uh, I'm sure that there's a ton of hacks, all this kind of stuff. Um, and on that hand too, I'm kind of thinking, I wonder if Amazon's response will be something along the lines of this is not our problem because, you know, you know, we're a service provider. We don't monitor this stuff. That's not, you know, how we work. I think that that's, you know, sort of been the approach. I don't want to say that that's been Amazon's approach, but I think I think people have generally said, you know, kind of you broke it, you bought it uh, when it comes to a lot of cloud services. Um, and and if you used it incorrectly or if you left it open or, you know, you didn't secure it, whatever, then that's not the provider's fault, that that's your fault. Um, and, and maybe that's the approach that Amazon might take if that's the case. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, you can look at it and you can think, well, Azure is a much more, um, more of an operating system level, uh, you know, cloud. It's not really the same kind of thing as the high level platforms. It's more of a, you know, software as a service, you know, versus, you know, platform as a service. Um, there could be a technical reason, I suppose, that the hackers are going after Azure in that it allows them to do privilege es escalation more in Windows or something. Uh, 
but I'm just not sure. Um, I think I think a much more likely case is that we just haven't heard of all the other things that are happening. That Microsoft is essentially discovering this stuff. Um, you know, that being said, I, I envision that an an AWS based attack, or you know, let's let's talk about it, like a Red Hat or you know Ubuntu based attack uh, on you know cloud services. I think it would have a very different vector. It would be very difficult or different to discover. Um, yeah, so maybe Azure is better. Maybe it's better to have a system that they can uncover these things instead of a system that's kind of wide open like a lot of the open source you know, cloud uh, software is. So anyway, I, I don't know. I, I, just, I just am not sure. And, um, and it is surprising, just like you, it's surprising to me that we haven't yet heard of that happening. Will it happen? I don't know, uh, probably. Um, when and, and, and to what extent and who's going to discover it and how's this going to work? I just don't know. Yeah, I, I, I have a feeling this story is going to dominate a lot of the rundown news cycles over the next few months. And and like you, I kind of hope that maybe there was some kind of, of serendipitous technical limitation that doesn't allow them to leverage AWS or GCP or Oracle Cloud as a platform for these vectors. But if that's the case, then you count your lucky stars and you make sure that this can't ever happen. Because if it can, you've just opened yourself up to a world of hurt. All right, well, that will just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We wanna thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the great content. Um, Steven, you've got a busy week this week. What have you got going on? Absolutely, Tom. Uh, it's Storage Field Day. If you uh, enjoy learning about storage as much as I do, um, or even if you're just curious about enterprise storage technology and what's coming next, uh, just head over to techfieldday.com, click on the Storage Field Day logo, and you'll see us live streaming essentially um, all morning and into the afternoon Pacific time, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, we are starting a little later on Wednesday because there's some other uh, event in Washington that day. Um, but you know, we're still starting on Wednesday and, uh, and you'll see uh, lots of presentations by uh, you know, sort of next generation storage companies. Um, one little B I'll put in your bonnet is that uh, one of the topics that's being discussed is this concept of storage list storage. Uh, and if that makes your head spin around, tune in for the Gestalt IT uh, on-premise IT roundtable podcast because we just recorded a podcast on the topic of storage list storage linked to this week's uh, storage field day event because uh, that's kind of how we do it. So anyway, yeah, check out the uh, roundtable podcast from today um, and you'll see uh, more information about storage list storage and also tune in uh, for the uh, storage field day. And, and if you miss it, um, if there's something else going on in your, in your world, uh, you can always find us on YouTube. Just go to YouTube slash tech field day and you'll find all the videos from Storage Field Day as well as all the other Storage Field Day events uh, and Tech Field Day events. How about you, Tom? Oh, I've got a busy week of uh, covering some articles of some interesting stuff happening in the industry. You know, uh, I take a lot of briefings, but I always write up my notes on uh, gestaltit.com, uh, where I like to share back with the community and, and keep you guys up to date on some of the interesting things that are going on. We also have some great uh, series. Steven mentioned the on-premise IT roundtable. We also have uh, conversations. We have the Checksum series. Uh, we have a lot of other great tech talks and interviews that I've done with some uh, interesting people in the community working on some fascinating technologies. Uh, all of that is on our website 
website at gestaltit.com. We also have a YouTube channel at youtube.com slash video where you can find this episode of The Rundown after we're uh, live, as well as some of the other great stuff that we've got going on, including unboxing videos and some other fun uh, stuff. So you don't want to miss that. But remember to set your calendars for 1230 Eastern Time every Wednesday, where we'll have another episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown headed your way, where we uh, inject a little bit of snark into your daily news cycle. So for Tom Hollingsworth and Stephen Foskett, the rest of our Gestalt IT family for Tech Field Day, our audience and our family there, we bid you a fond adieu for today and have a super sparkly day.